Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said, in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and rose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fought for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So either I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. We do give thanks for this word that you've given to us, an ancient word, but yet one still relevant to us today. And we come to you by necessity, because we need your spirit to teach us. Without him and his work in our lives, we are blind, and we do not understand the things that you have given to us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. It's in 445, 
that Nehemiah returned to the city of Jerusalem, and he had an audacious task, as we've seen over the last several weeks. He was to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. It was an audacious task because those walls had been destroyed in 586 by the Babylonians. This is some 140 years later. There have been several half-measures, kind of half-hearted attempts at building the city. The temple had been reconstructed, but the city was still vulnerable, that everything was still in chaos and somewhat upside down, and Nehemiah returned to right-side-up that situation. Because here was the issue. Nehemiah knew the promises of God. He knew the covenant that God had sworn with his people. And that covenant was that one of the line of David was to sit upon the throne and to bring salvation to all the nations of the earth. And he was to sit upon the throne in the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah understood these promises, but then he looked at the present reality. And the city of Jerusalem was in shambles, and the son of David was not upon the throne. And so he observed a gap between the promise of God on the one hand and the present state of things, the reality, on the other. And so Nehemiah steps into that gap by faith, and he seeks to do something. In chapter 3, we saw last week that the construction begins. There were priests and lay people. There were sons and daughters. There were merchants and farmers. Everyone except few of the nobles were engaged in the work. And they were doing everything from the lowly jobs attached to repairing the dung gate. That is what you think it is. The sewer system connected to the city of Jerusalem in 445. To repairing the breaches in the walls and the beautiful gates that surrounded Jerusalem. They were all engaged, giving themselves wholeheartedly to the work. They were invested. There was enthusiasm, commitment, joy, unity, momentum, and excitement. But in chapter 4, we run into trouble. Significant trouble and opposition that begins to plague the work as their initial enthusiasm begins to wear off. Now, in many ways... It would be somewhat easier, and it would certainly make for easier preaching, just to gloss over this and move to some other chapters. There's a lot of positive things that happen in the book of Nehemiah, and it would be perhaps fun to focus on those things and to center our messages on the positive aspects and not look at the negative. But in doing so, if we were to do that, we would absolutely sacrifice what God is saying to the church today through this very important book as Nehemiah rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. Because what he is saying today, he's saying to us as a church. Because he speaks about what it is to renew the church and the promises of God. And what it is to build the kingdom of God today. And in Nehemiah 4, we particularly see exactly what we are going to experience when we participate in the building of that kingdom. He teaches us just what to expect. So what does it look like? Three things for us this morning. The first, when we engage in God's work in a really serious way, when we decide to roll up our sleeves and get dirt underneath our fingernails, when we engage that work, we will experience opposition. We saw the beginning of this last week, and we've seen two shadowy characters sitting in the background of the story to Nehemiah. The first, his name is Sanballat, the governor of Samaria to the north of Jerusalem, and then the other, Tobiah, who was a ruler somewhere to the east. 
of Jerusalem. Sanballat asked five questions that were intended to be rhetorical, that were to insult the efforts of Nehemiah and the people in their rebuilding. In verse 1, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? And burn ones at that. Tobiah then cast his own aspersions. Tobiah the Ammonite who was beside him and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. These men had presented themselves as opposition. And then in verse 7 you find that they were not alone. That there were others who were joined in as well. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were angry. And so the opposition grew. And here are two important things to recognize as the book progresses. First, the opposition was increasing as the work became more intense and moved forward. You see, just because they started the work didn't mean that it was done, and it didn't mean the opposition was done. Rather, it intensified for Nehemiah because this group of people that we just have listed off, I know the names of the Bible are sometimes quite confusing, but the Ammonites were to the east. The Ashdodites were actually to the west of Jerusalem along the coast. And then we have Sanballat to the north, and then we learned of Gershom last week down to the south. And so the message is very clear that Nehemiah was surrounded. He was completely encircled. He was cut off from the rest of the world in certain ways. And you can imagine the loneliness of that feeling. As he seeks to build on the promise of God, he's seeking to act on it, and he has opposition on every side of his life. There was no place where he could get a break. And that opposition wasn't going away. In fact, it was gaining momentum. They were coming for it. For him. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy 3 All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's just as sure as the promise of your forgiveness. That when you roll up your sleeves and you get dirt underneath your fingernails, when you engage with the work of God's kingdom, you can bank on the fact that you're going to have opposition, that you're going to experience it in various ways. But what is the challenge for the church? In this, two practical things to talk about. The first is, is that when we experience opposition, we have to discern the difference between critique and opposition. Not everyone who comes to us with a critique is actually an opponent. And the church sometimes is really bad about this. When someone disagrees with the decision the elders have made, when someone disagrees with the pastor about something that he says or something that he preached, oftentimes there can be a defensive stance that doesn't want to be open to any type of critique, that doesn't want to listen to anything, and that the immediate response is to build a wall of defense and to label the person as an opponent. This is a very negative thing that takes place in the life of a church. It's not healthy. Because what needs to happen is there needs to be a very practical discernment 
that there sometimes is room and there always is the need for room for hearing critique and ways to improve and ways to grow and ways to expand. And that if we're defensive and we just label everyone an opponent, then we will flounder as we just somewhat drift off. Now, the church also can't just cave in to every type of critique. There has to be some type of discernment that goes on to understand whether it's a valid uh, critique and a good one. Now, the second thing that we learn from this is we must learn not to get our bearings from our opponents. There is going to be opposition. That opposition is aligned in such a way that it works against the promises of God. And if we find our approval... And if we find our sense of identity and wholeness and well-being in the approval of the world around us, then we're in for a very long journey, a difficult one. You see that Nehemiah had to struggle and work through, along with a mass group of people, as the opponents ridiculed them, jeered them, called their work feeble, said a fox could knock down that wall. That wouldn't be very encouraging, I doubt, for people who are working really hard. They were discouraged, they were defeated, they were demoralized by these type things. And friends, that's what happens to us as well. People mock and jeer, they look at the work of the church and they say, it's senseless, it's useless, it doesn't accomplish anything, and it's not impressive. That's a worldly evaluation of it. And this is what Nehemiah had to work through. He couldn't get his bearings off of what he was going to continue to do by what his opponents said. But rather, he evaluated what he was doing along with the church that was with him and asked whether he was walking in line with the promises of God. And that's the challenge for the church. It's to prayerfully discern when we hear critique, whether it's from God or whether it's not, and then to always get our bearings from God to ask whether our lives and our purposes and what we're doing is in line with his promises. And this is the demanding work of knowing theology and also turning that theology into prayer, as we saw with Nehemiah in chapter 1. It is knowing what the promise of God is, what God is doing in the world, what his purpose is, what his plans are, where he's going. And then it's the work of prayer to align ourselves with that purpose and that plan, knowing all of those promises. And this is the lifeblood of the church. It's the challenge that we face. The second thing that we see going on here is what we can expect is that in our labors for God, we also encounter the great mystery of human life. If you follow in verse 9, this verse perfectly captures the mystery. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. What mystery am I speaking about? It's the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. It's perfect. We prayed, entrusting ourselves to God, and what else? We set a guard. (laughs) And you find it running all through this chapter. In verse 17, they worked with one hand and held a weapon in the other. Serious about that guardianship they had to exercise. But in verse 20, we see that they were confident that their God would fight for them. And actually, they never took up the sword against anyone in this entire situation. They were entrusting themselves to God in his work. 
And friends, these are the two sides of the equation that we have to always appreciate and understand. And it's not in a 50-50 kind of way that we try to do so. To say that God is, yeah, kind of sovereign and that we're kind of responsible. No, we affirm both. 100%. And we don't seek to understand and explain it all. We affirm the reality of what the Bible teaches. That God is 100% sovereign and humans are 100% responsible. That we're to be engaged in the work of God and we're to entrust the outcome to him. As a young college student, I was perplexed by these things. I was engaged in a good bit of evangelism. And at times I would see fruit and people convert. And at times I would see friendships that had been cultivated where the gospel had been shared and people would just grow disinterested and not desire to move forward. And so it was a very practical question for me. Why is that the case? Why do some people get so interested in Jesus? And it seems like I do so very little to share the gospel with them. And they were becoming Christians. And some I was giving my best arguments to, reading up on all of my apologetics, and they would just shrug their shoulders and say, why is that the case? I was handed J.I. Packer's wonderful book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. If you never read it, I'd recommend it to you. And Packer there uses an illustration. He says, Albert Einstein discovered that light was two things. It was a particle and it was a wave. When Einstein came out with that theory, nobody quite understood it or believed it. And maybe they still don't. Because everybody knew one thing. Particles were not waves. And then they knew another thing. Waves were not particles. (laughs) So light could not possibly be a particle and a wave. But yet he had proven, and it was irrefutable, that light behaved as a particle and a wave. And so the work of the the one engaged in astrophysics was to affirm that light is a particle and a wave. And not being able to fully understand it. Knowing that there was a greater reality out there that went beyond our capacities. And Packer says this is exactly what's true of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We affirm what we know. Both are true. And friends, when we engage in the work of God, the kingdom of God, and we take up our responsibility and work hard, we do entrust then all the results, all the outcome to God, and affirm and believe that God fights for us, that he's doing well beyond what we can see and know and experience. Now, after graduating college, I went to work with the college ministry at Presbyterian College. When I arrived there in the fall of 1998, yes, it's a long time ago now, I inherited a small, broken ministry, and part of my task in going there was to renew that work and to also start over in certain ways. And so I was collecting uh, names of incoming freshmen who I would go visit and attempt to build relationships with. And God was doing some unique things at that time because I was also receiving phone calls from people saying, hey, I've got a son who's coming to school, and I would like for you to meet him. One of those phone calls was from a concerned sister who was a member of Presbyterian Church and said, hey, my younger brother is coming to Presbyterian. I think you would really enjoy him. I want you to meet him. His name is Lawton Greenwood. And, uh, and so I had Lawton's name down on the list. And during those first couple of weeks of classes, uh, I went around visiting these different guys to try to get to know them and just say, hey, your sister touched base with me. I'd love to take you to lunch. And so a lot of relationships were built. And one was built with Lawton on that front. And Lawton, in responding to me, said, yeah, you know, I, I'm really interested in coming to church some, and I'll come to you some weekly meetings, 
and, uh, and I would love to just continue talking to you about Jesus. And so we did that. We talked about Jesus some. But I noticed that he never came to church and never came to the weekly meeting. That stretched on for several years. We would have lunch occasionally, and he was always nice, and he was always deferential, and he would always wave, and he would always avoid me. <laughs> Three years later, God called Melissa and I on to seminary, and, uh, and I hadn't thought of Lawton Greenwood a great deal. This past winter, I was out of town visiting with some friends and met uh, a really old acquaintance, over 20 years old, in fact. And I was just asking them about their lives and where they were attending church. And they said, yeah, well, we're, we're part of a, a church revitalization work outside of Columbia, South Carolina. And the guy was explaining that he was an elder there and that there was another elder and his name was Lawton Greenwood. <laughs> and it just was a moment to pause and laugh. Because suddenly these memories of this young 18-year-old knucklehead who was nice and polite but wanted nothing to do with the gospel, who was giving himself to worldly pursuits and everything that the college had to offer, wanted nothing to do with Jesus at that point in his life, that God had done something. And it happened right after he graduated. He sent a text message back when he found out that we were in conversation. He said, tell Chuck I'm so sorry. <laughs> But friends, this is what it is. We work hard. We have to turn the results into God's hands. This is the mystery of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. And God fights for us. God does the work that he's always intending to do. But divine sovereignty doesn't excuse us from getting our hands dirty and rolling up our sleeves and getting involved and invested in the work. That's how it goes for us. We engage that great mystery. Now, the third piece of this, though, what we learn to expect, is that in this kind of work, we will also experience fatigue and discouragement. Follow with me in verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Now, this is one of those moments where our English translations can't quite capture what is said in the original. This was something like a limerick. It was almost like a short, pithy saying, a poem that had gotten down into the people as they talked with one another. The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. You hear the message. They were discouraged. And so amongst all those who had gotten together and began to work on the wall, now they were looking at all this rubble and they were saying, our strength is too small to do this. The obstacles are too big. And now they had heaped on top of that opposition from every side. They were discouraged. They were demoralized. And this mournful slogan here captures it. The discouragement was sinking down into their bones. And this is particularly unique to the power of ridicule. Ridicule then and there, and ridicule here and now, is very effective. It makes us feel foolish. They were told that a fox could tear down their wall. And people often look at the church's work today, and they can say similar injuring things, where we become discouraged, we're demotivated, we're demoralized, and we don't want to invest because we feel simply foolish. 
Five and a half years ago when I first moved to Christ Church, we were in a particularly difficult spot. And for those of you who've been on that journey, you understand what I mean by that. But after planting our second church and then a summer of transitions in which we saw many good families called away to another city, to other cities all around, across the country in fact, our membership was down to about 120 people and suddenly we found ourselves in a little bit of a situation (laughs) that God needed to do something on our behalf. That summer we decided to throw off most of our programming to spend some time just eating with one another. We had some fellowship gatherings and different things, but overall we were in kind of a planning and assessment mode of what do we need to do. There were lots of meetings going on behind the scenes, and I was taking kind of a routine practice of gathering with some people who had concerns about the congregation to have lunch with them. One of those conversations, I had said very little. I was listening pretty intently, and then the person asked me, very helpfully, what do you want to see happen at Christ Church? And so I shared with them my sense of an immediate plan that would build on a longer-term plan and how hopeful I was for that and why I was hopeful. And uh, and their response was, well, good luck. I don't think it's going to work. I walked out of that lunch and knew I had a decision to make. It was one of the most demoralizing things I'd ever heard. You know, on the backside of what had seemed to be a decent conversation, a good dialogue, good luck. And they were indicating we're not going to be a part of it. And friends, that is the power of ridicule. That day, honestly, just in my own gut, and you would have felt the same if you were in the conversation, I felt foolish. I felt foolish for thinking that God might do something. And I had a decision to make. Was I going to believe that and begin to move into that? Or was I going to believe that God had actually made promises that he builds salvation and he brings salvation to the nations through the church? And that all the great history of Christ's church could be recovered. That God still had some work here to do and that we could trust him and that we could step together and we could roll up our sleeves and get dirt underneath our fingernails and we could ask God to revitalize and renew the work at Christ church. That's the decision that had to be made. And friends, that decision in my own life has had to be made a thousand times since then and in your own experience in hundreds of ways. Do we cave in to the discouragement? Do we cave in to the ridicule? Do we get demoralized where we begin to pull back from God's work? And the very practical question that confronts us is how do we handle that discouragement? How do we handle that ridicule? How do we get re-motivated when we find ourselves discouraged, somewhat depressed, and very fatigued, and that discouragement begins to reach down into our bones? You see the answer in verse 14, a very short sermon by Nehemiah. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. It's interesting because Nehemiah here picks up from um, language from Exodus chapter 14. If you look in verses 13 and 14 there, you'll see that he just mimics the language that was applied to Moses and the great victory at the Red Sea. God fighting for us. 
Remember the Lord who has done these things because this is the God who continues to accompany us today. It's the same God who makes promises to us today. And that for us today in Jesus Christ, God promises to fight for us. And so what pulls us out of that despair? What pulls us out of that discouragement? How can we get remotivated when the walls are down and there just seems to be a huge gap between the promise of God and the reality we see around us? It's to hear those words, do not be afraid. Remember the Lord. Remember all that God has done for you in Jesus Christ. That is in the forgiveness of your sins, wiping out that record, removing that dirty slate, wiping it clean because of what Christ has done for you, not what you've done for him. And then remembering who he is for you today, that he promises not just to forgive your past sins, but he's forgiving your sins the present today, and he's always faithful to you. And then remembering who he is for you in the future, that he promises to forgive your sins then too. And he promises to bring you into a new world of creation healed and all the broken parts of our world around us fixed and renewed and made right. Friends, in the face of ridicule and opposition where the world looks on the work of the church and says it's silly, that it's feeble, that it's weak, this is the one place the church can retreat. But it's a retreat into a strong refuge. It's a retreat into the promises of God. That the God who was yesterday is today and will be forever. That he doesn't back off his promises. He's faithful to us in Jesus Christ. And that is the way that the church finds motivation. That's where we gain our bearings. That's why we do what we do. And so let's ask him this morning to do it once again for us. To encourage us in Jesus Christ as we remember him. Let's pray. And Father, we're grateful for the great privilege it is to be called into the work of building your kingdom. And we frankly acknowledge today the difficulties that that brings upon us. We know there is discouragement. We know there is opposition. We know there is often even ridicule. And we can feel like fools for engaging your work. But Lord, we have one resource, and that is to remember our Lord Jesus and that you would encourage us and motivate us and stimulate all the labors, all the work, all the effort because of who you are for us in him. And so draw near, work and encourage us even today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.